Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast series here on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Elizabeth Ganella about using your campus mental wellness center. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth. Hi, thank you for having me. I am so glad that you're here and that we are getting to do this important episode today. This is a topic that really matters to me. But before we dive into that, I was hoping you would tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Yes, I would love to. Um, So currently, um, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist in California, and I primarily have been working for the last six years at a small college counseling and psychological services uh, center. Um, I also have a small private practice in Santa Barbara, and I teach as an adjunct faculty member at Pacifica Graduate Institute. Um, But I've worked in the mental health field for about the last 25 years um, in different capacities, and, and then sort of found my way later in life after I had, I took some time off to focus on family and um, later in life went back and got my master's degree in counseling psychology. And so I've been licensed since about uh, 2012 and working more with individuals in the psychotherapeutic counseling realm. And I love my work with young adults in the college setting. That's primarily been my client base. Um, and continues to be at this time. So, yeah, and other than that, I um, I have three daughters. I live in Santa Barbara. Um, my husband's also in academia. He's a botany teacher, um, and we're really enjoying the nice weather here. And I also, just my hobbies are kind of in the areas of music, and also tending to animals. I raise chickens and hope to have more in the future. Um, so juggling things, but keeping a really nice balance in my work life and private life these days, that feels really good. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what inspired you to choose this career path. Yeah. Um, you know, I think uh, it's interesting, too. I do some work in career counseling, and I teach a career development course at the graduate school where I teach. Um, and I think that when I look back, I can see how a lot of my just innate personality traits sort of led me into work, working with people, working in helping professions and the humanities, Um So like when I was younger, I did a lot of camp counseling kind of work, and I really enjoyed that very social, um, active, working with people, troubleshooting things that happen with groups of kids. That all came very natural uh, for me. And so I think there was a natural lead into um, working in the helping professions. And then as I got a little older, I was exposed in my 20s to working with uh, mentally ill adults, um, developmentally disabled adults, and became more curious and more comfortable with those populations um, and continued also to work with adolescents in sort of therapeutic settings and eventually worked 
inpatient psychiatric hospital work for about 10 to 12 years. And that was challenging. That was a challenging work environment. And I sort of came to a crossroads of wondering if I wanted to change fields or continue on. And then at that point, I became very inspired by uh, doing some one-on-one mentoring, uh, counseling, direction type work with college students and uh, really felt strongly at that point that I wanted to go back and get a higher degree and become licensed so that I could delve into that type of work more. And I have a lot of confirmation daily that that was a really good choice for me. Um, I, I love what I do. I find it fascinating. I, I find the human story never loses its interest and curiosity for me. And so I feel very, very grateful to have found this work and really be able to connect um, to it and to people. And yeah, it's it's been a good path. And looking back, it makes a lot of sense. So, And you currently, it sounds like, have three jobs. You're an adjunct professor. You have a private practice. And then you also work in a campus, uh, in a wellness center that supports uh, students at a local campus. Yes, this is true. Can you tell us about um, your work? I know it's a, it's, a, it's a recent job change from one local campus to another one, but can you tell us about um, the new campus uh, project that you're part of with mental wellness? Yeah, I would love to share a little bit about that. So one thing that's just become evident, um, and we could delve into a little bit more as to as to why that is, and I my guess is that there's multiple reasons, but one thing that has become evident in the research is that college campuses, mental health centers and services are being utilized, um, and sometimes utilized to the point where those centers um, are struggling with capacity. So Um, Some college counseling centers just don't have enough clinicians and enough services to to serve the population that is seeking out those services. Um, And this this was true in both settings. I was at a small private college, and now I am working for a different company. It's called Acacia Counseling and Wellness. It actually has sites around California and Minnesota, and they're planning to expand across the nation. But the the reason for its even being in existence was to meet that call for more services specifically for college students. And so it's not directly affiliated with campuses, but they tend to put their offices in locations where there are big universities, and then they serve primarily the students' Um, and community that is around that college. And really meeting sort of the spillover need that the colleges themselves are having a hard time fulfilling. Um, so that's that's one aspect of, of my work uh, with college students. You mentioned that more and more students are using their campus wellness center and, and are protecting and supporting their mental health. And yet in the larger culture, there's still a stigma about using those services or admitting that you are struggling. Um, can you talk a bit about 
how we can further destigmatize that and and um, how that might affect people not getting services. Yeah, it's a great, great issue and just kind of concept to lean into. And there's a part of me that just wants to say, I think we're we owe it to the young people, the younger generation um, seems to be a lot more open and a lot, a lot less willing to carry that stigma. Um, they might be leading the way really for the culture to just be able to say, um, you know, it's okay to reach out for help and it's okay to admit that I'm struggling in these certain areas. And they seem to be much more open to reaching out for counseling services. Um, and yet the counseling realm and any kind of therapeutic service is very protected for confidentiality. So if people are feeling um, uncomfortable or not wanting you know, other people to know their struggles or that they are reaching out for help, that's still held, held really tightly. Um, so we kind of get into this realm where I think they're, it's less stigmatizing to reach out for help. Um, and that may be the reason that college counseling and wellness centers are being somewhat flooded. Um, and yet we also have to look at, especially right now, what's going on in our world and our culture and the amount of stress and anxiety on the young adult population um, is also, I, I believe, a contributing factor to just more students reaching out for services. So kind of a combination of the two. So if a student hasn't used mental wellness services before and maybe doesn't come from a background where that's been encouraged or um, talked about and they're trying to determine on their own, well, do I really need help? One thing I do hear from people when they're considering help is they say, well, you know, it's not that bad. Can you talk about why that's not the standard they need to apply to themselves when figuring out if they want to use resources? Yeah, I'm really glad that you that you brought that up because this is something that I would say um, I see on a weekly, almost daily, but certainly weekly basis is sort of this students grappling with these thoughts of, oh, I, I don't do I really need counseling? Just like you said, it's not that bad. Um, I can get through it. Or maybe they even have heard messages from their family, um, you know, deal with it on your own or. Um, don't don't go outside of certain groups to talk about your struggles. And, and then other students feel like, oh, I don't want to take up a space that maybe somebody else needs more than I do. And so we tend to look at this external realm and sort of compare ourselves to what we think other people are struggling with, um, maybe what we know they're struggling with because our roommate's sharing with us. Um, and that's normal. We all do that. Um, but I guess from my perspective and my encouragement to students who come in with that is to just really honor and validate that their experience is their experience and what they're feeling um, doesn't necessarily need to be compared to what they imagine other people are going through. Um, and so if, if you feel an inclination or a nudge or a pull to reach out, um, I think it's important to honor that and follow through. And sometimes it, it might be just one or two sessions where it's really helpful to, to 
to share a stressor, or maybe there's a topic that's hard to talk about with your friends, but you could come and sort of unload that in a therapy session and, and actually feel a lot of relief from having that experience. Um, so as much as possible to not do the uh, external sort of comparison. Um, and another reminder that often we're, we're imagining what our friends and classmates are feeling without, without really knowing um, what might be present for them. So you mentioned that with the state of the world right now, more students are becoming aware that they don't feel the way that they want to feel, that they're struggling with different feelings. And one thing I've noticed on social media is a lot of students talking about frustrations, uh, feelings of depression or difficult thoughts, and then asking you know, if they're the only one who feels like this. Um, what would you say to students like that? Um, I would say they are not the only one feeling like this. <laughs> and this is something that I, I've thought about quite a bit. And and sometimes I I have a humorous approach to it, but I often say if I had, you know, if I had a dime for every time a student shared their struggles and then said, you know, I'm different from everyone else or that no one else on this campus really feels like I feel. Um, it, it, and yet the five students that day that were in my office all said the same thing. And I think to myself, oh, I wish they, you know, I have to hold all the confidentiality, but it's like, maybe they'll talk to each other. Maybe they'll share somewhere and realize that they're, they're all feeling a lot of stress and anxiety and they're all under a lot of pressure. Um, and I do worry, I have deep concern that the social, and I, and I don't want to bash the technology and social media, right? It's a part of our lives and especially young adults are really active in that world. But my concern becomes that what the picture that they're seeing is all so edited and so photoshopped. And so there's this, these image, it's all these image based information about how other people are doing. And it seems so easy for students to look at that, you know, and this is nothing new. I'm sure we've, we've talked about this before, but they see this outside shiny, fun, you know, and they, they project that into their social media. But what starts to happen, I think, is there's this deep-seated part of it that we believe is is reality. And, and it maybe is part of what causes us to think that our friends aren't suffering in the ways that we are. And our friends aren't experiencing anxiety and depression the way that we are. Because more often than not, what we're seeing of their life is is what's portrayed through the social media realm instead of in real time, you know, instead of in person and in deep conversation or experiences together where, where these things might naturally be revealed in a more honest way. And so I'm really hoping that this younger generation who are the ones that are really active in the social media realms will start to find their own kind of solutions to these dilemmas and really think about how is this impacting their mental health and how how could we adjust it in a way that starts to become a more realistic picture and also allow for more deep, real, personal human connection. And I think 
there's no answer to that yet. It's like this, and I'm just hoping for just creativity and um, thinking outside the box. And um, I'm so interested to see what might be generated, you know, from that generation, because they're the ones that are really getting the, you know, they're the ones that are really experiencing the pros and cons of what interacting in that realm is doing for them or not doing. I think some of the messages on social media, people are looking for guidance. They're looking for a way through. And one of the things I've noticed is social media is full of slogans or memes. Um, And as I've looked at those, sometimes when I was having my own difficult day, I thought, wow, if I could fix what I'm facing right now with a slogan, in some ways, I think I would feel really bad about myself. Like it, it was this challenging, it was this difficult, and it could have been fixed with a one sentence philosophy. Um, can you give us some advice and tips for how we can sit with difficult feelings instead of feeding them or ignoring them? How can we sit with difficult feelings and let them do what they're there to do? And can you tell us what they are there to do? Yeah, that's a great, a great question. Um, And we have become overly programmed these days to grab the nearest thing that will distract us from difficult feelings. And, you know, I like to say to students I work with, sometimes you absolutely need a distraction. Sometimes when feelings feel overwhelming or perhaps, you know, might lead you to a place of, of destructive things that you don't don't want to do, or you're, you're looking for a way out. Sometimes we absolutely need the distractions. Um, and the, and they can come in all forms, uh, listening to music or watching a show or, um, just doing something different. But I also, of course, as a mental health provider, recognize the importance of sitting with difficult feelings And, you know, there's so many things that mental health psychoeducation or process um, helps us to understand about our feelings. One being that they tend to come and go. So feelings tend to rise up in us and then they tend to kind of move on. An analogy I often use is like a wave in the ocean. Um, and when it's building and at its peak and about to crash, it can feel so overwhelming. But what we know is once it kind of tips over that edge and pushes itself onto the shore, um, there's a release and a relief and, and we can usually move through it. And sometimes just knowing that you're going to get on to the other side is really important. Um, it's important to just have that sense in yourself in order to endure um, and sit with and experience what's rising in you. And the other thing, I think there's something in your question where you said, why is it important to sit with these uncomfortable feelings? That's such a great question because when we're in that space, we would say, well, I don't want to be here. I don't want to feel sad. I don't want to feel depressed. I don't want to feel anxiety. Um, So why would I try to sit with these uncomfortable feelings? Um, And that is a, that is a deep question, a deep question of, of how 
humans function in the world and what I really think of uh, this sense of the human soul um, and how we move through a life. And, you know, I often say it to my students too, it, it's so natural to feel sad. It's so natural to feel longing or depression. Um, I also love the term melancholy or a sense of like a melancholic feeling. That's part of the human experience. Um, and I think sometimes in the culture right now, we tend to say, well, if I'm not happy all the time, there's something wrong. I would actually say, if you're not sad some of the time, I think something's wrong. Because to engage with life um, in a fully embodied way is to feel sadness and to feel suffering. Um, and then you say, well, what, you know, what's the purpose of that? And and I do share these things sometimes with students, but just to give sort of an example, you know, I think that as we're moving through our life, sometimes it's those periods of depression and melancholy that remind us that we're looking for meaning. And so that what the soul or what that symptom is actually calling for uh, might be a quest in in someone's life to start to look for, well, what is meaningful to me? And where am I engaging in things that I find deep meaning in? Or how can I create more meaning in the things I'm doing? And that it's actually those feelings of sadness and depression and um, melancholic sort of pondering that can sometimes bring that desire to the surface. Um, And so that would be a way I would answer that question of why sit with those uncomfortable feelings. Why? Because I think they can actually be the vehicle to a more meaningful life. Um, And as I say that, I also just want to add uh, that I'm not really referencing here debilitating depression. Um, I think we have to, as a mental health provider, I have to kind of hold that there's two categories of depression. And um, and there are occasions where that very debilitating um, depressive states that really interfere with us living our life need a different kind of treatment or solution. Um, but so many students that I work with have a little bit more mild um, forms of this. And so I'm sharing a little bit from that reference point. Right now, students are getting either the letter that they dreamed of or the letter that they dreaded. And they're opening their email and hearing either congratulations or, you know, not right now. And so, and that's happening to uh, undergrads and graduate students and professors who sent out journal articles or book manuscripts. Um, in the academic life in the time period of someone's life where they involved in academia in some way or another, they're going to get a lot of rejections. Can you talk to us about how we handle that? Yeah, that's just, that's hard, right? It's like these just disappointments on our journey through life that, that show up when we don't want them to, or um, they feel very inconvenient. They don't work with our plans. Um and those can be very challenging, challenging times. Yeah, I'm trying to think just into that a little bit, how we manage these disappointments or rejections when they come along. Um, and really, one of the first things that came to mind is just, you know, 
I think what can happen that can make them feel more devastating is when we sort of, and we all know this, so it's more of a reminder, but when we sort of hang our hat on one thing happening or we anticipate, we foresee our future in this way that um, is fairly limited. I, I need to go to this place and do this thing and get into this program or else, or else whatever you're filling, you fill in the blank, but we've created some story around what we think needs to happen. Um, and I think it's important to, to recognize that if you can become conscious of that and even maybe flesh that story out, um, that can be helpful to then be able to turn toward an increased possibility, sense of possibility. Um, you know, if this isn't the avenue that's going to unfold in front of me, what other options do I have? Um, and where else can I find a meaningful pursuit in my life or where else can I achieve the goals that I have or the education that I want? And so sort of that, you know, it, it requires a, an aspect of resilience um, to be able to, to move through the disappointment and then chart a new path. But I think it can also be so helpful to talk to people that are a little bit further down life's journey um, older people and hear their stories of when these things happened, but how other opportunities emerged and, and things really did work out. It wasn't the end of, you know, what they imagined their life to be. And so often they'll say it was better than I imagined when I took this other path. Um, so I, I always feel like we get into trouble when our view and our perspective gets very limited um, and so that could be one way to, to think of it that might be helpful. We were talking about if you could come to therapy, um, more than once, or if it's a big commitment, if you're struggling with taking healthy risks, right? If you, if you applied to these places and they said, no, you took a healthy risk, um, but it does hurt. Would that be a time when it would be possible to go for just a few sessions um, at your campus mental wellness center and, and say, I'm feeling really bad about this. And, and especially if you feel stuck, uh, uh, maybe having gone into it with the mindset that you mentioned that you'd put every hope on this one thing that didn't turn out, or you thought that you hadn't, but when you got rejected, you realized how much you were counting on that thing working out, or maybe it's a breakup. I mean, it, rejection comes in multiple different ways in our life. If we're living a rich, full life, there's multiple ways things can change in a way we weren't hoping for. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I do think it can be helpful. And I definitely, and I'm glad you included breakup because I, I see a lot of students that, that are in that. And that's a tender moment in a person's life. And a lot is, um, a lot of things are just evoked in that process of, of, being in deep relationship and having it end. And it's it's similar to the college thing in the sense that we often project our vision of our future, you know, with this person or at this place. Um, and I do find that some more brief therapy can be really helpful to move through those challenges for sure. And, and also I think it's helpful because sometimes... Um, 
and I mean, family and friends are so supportive and we need to lean on them and let them know that, that we're feeling disappointed or how hard these things are on us. But I think sometimes with our family and even close friends, they're more invested in your specific journey, right? They might be sharing that story with you in a way that it's a little bit, they're also disappointed. And sometimes by going to a therapist who's a little bit outside of that that bubble, um, it can be a way to get a fresh perspective and feel more freedom to share what you're really feeling without feeling responsible for, say, your mom or your dad worrying or feeling um, also being dis- disappointed that something didn't work out for you in the way that you had hoped. There's a little, there's just a different, a different way that the the therapeutic situation can really help you start to explore sometimes with a bit more freedom. Um, so I do, I'm, I'm a proponent of like a brief model. If you feel like it's something that you might be able to work through um, or just could be helpful to get fresh perspective on. Um, another resource I just want to throw out is, is most, if you're in, in a college setting already, um, there's also typically a lot of resources around career counseling as well. And so if, if some of the stressors are more related to indecision about maybe what major or program or what profession you might be interested in, those can that can be a great resource um, as well. Can you talk a little bit about people who maybe they went to therapy a little bit when they're younger, maybe their parents got divorced and said, you know, you have to go to therapy. So they went for a while when they were 12 and refused to talk to the therapist or they went for a little while in high school, but they, you know, it didn't quite click. And and now they're at college and they're thinking or grad school and they're thinking, no, I've tried therapy. It doesn't work for me. Can you talk about how there are actually different ways of doing therapy? And sometimes it's about fit. Absolutely. Yeah. I get that a lot too. I, I, a lot of students come in and their only experience in therapy was as a child or at school maybe there was a family event or big life event and the people who were caring for them felt like that would be helpful. And often what you find is, especially for a child and sometimes even a high school age person, there's a little bit less investment in the therapeutic process. Like it wasn't their idea or they're not quite sure why they're there or they don't even really know how to talk about maybe why the their parents sent them to the therapy um, and, and I think there's a big shift when people enter into college because you're really embarking on a more independent lifestyle. Uh, you're transitioning into adulthood. And I find that college students will feel much more invested in the therapeutic process or even inclined to engage in it because it was their idea or they felt something was not as good in their life as they wanted it to be, or something came up that they weren't expecting. Um, And so I think engaging therapy at that stage in life can have a really different quality to it. Um, And I usually talk through that a little bit in most of the first sessions I have with college students, just reflecting on if they had had a prior experience and what was that like? Um, Was it helpful? Was it not helpful? And then, and then kind of diving into what 
what prompted them to reach out for counseling this time around. And, and usually it is something in, internal that prompts a person to want to reach out. And I'm, I'm very encouraging of following those inner nudges or um, at least pursue it and find out maybe what was that that made me think, hey, this could be a good idea or this might be helpful. Um, and then at that, in that college age, like I think I already said this, but there's a deeper investment in that identity formation because now your identity is being formed outside of your family structure or the community that you grew up in. And so there's really a lot of room to explore different thoughts or different feelings that are coming up. Um, that's really what inspires me to work with this age group. It's a really vital dynamic time of life. And so there's, there's just a lot of energy around that. And it is, it's just a beautiful thing to sit with people as they're sort of, you know, maybe struggling a bit to map that out, but also discovering a lot in the process. You get to spend a lot of time one-on-one with students who are engaged in higher ed. From that vantage point, could you tell us what you wish more students knew? Oh, that's a great question. What I wish more students knew. Gosh, that's tricky, but I think, I mean, I feel like I sound like an old person now, but I think that there's, you know, there's more to life. Like there's, there's more, sometimes um, I'll share an analogy and, and this is, this is, or a metaphor. This is more something that I imagined into when I worked more with high schoolers, but when when I was working in inpatient psychiatric hospital work and, um, and sometimes the, the young people that came in were just in so much distress. Um, and many of them, you know, really in a hard place and sometimes, um, contemplating suicide or feeling like there was no hope or something had occurred in their life that just felt utterly devastating. And, and my image of my work um, became that it's kind of a silly image, but I'll explain it. I sometimes would imagine uh, someone sort of wrapped around them in black construction paper, black pieces of construction paper sort of enveloping the individual. Because when they looked around, even if they turned a circle, all they really came up against was this darkness, this black darkness. But what we know about construction paper is it's really pretty flimsy. It's very easy to poke a hole into that paper. And I started to conceptualize some of my work in that setting as if I can just help, maybe from the inside, or if I maybe have to do it from the outside, just to poke a hole through the construction paper and then and help the individual get their eye up to the hole so they could just see out, even if it was a little bit, to beyond what their struggle was, beyond how much suffering they were in or their desperation, that there was something outside of that. There was a whole world out there, whether it was um, right around the corner or something they didn't know was out there, um, to broaden their perspective and not feel quite so trapped. Um, and I think th- that's an image that's really stuck with me in, in sort of framing some of the of my work. And so that 
that might connect with what I would want students to know is that even during these times in adolescence and young adulthood that can feel just dark or um, like a little bit hopeless, that there's life beyond that. Like it, there's a perspective that's that's moving forward and there's things ahead of you that you're in, going to encounter in your life um, that are going to both be filled with so much joy and wonder and also sadness, right? And so we're starting to learn during these times in our life how to hold both and, and how to accept that both are a part of the human experience. Um, but that takes time and that takes learning and growth and, and really having people around you that can usher you through sort of those um, events in your life that evoke deep emotion. Um, so that's one thing that comes to mind. I'm sure there's, there's more that I'll think of, of later. Um, I would say that was the thing. I did think of one more thing. <laughs> um, Go ahead. I feel like sometimes students come in and, and I'm just going to say this in, in really like street vernacular, but there's a sense of like they come into therapy because they want to know what's wrong with them. Like if someone just tells me what's wrong with me, I'll feel, I'll feel better or I just want to know. Um, and, and there's sort of this feeling like that's what they're there for and they're waiting for to hear, you know, what's wrong with me. And sometimes I think to myself, a lot of what the process of therapy turns into is is revealing that there's there's actually nothing wrong with them and and that their particularities or eccentricities and the way they are in the world it's what i want them to know is this is this is who they are this is what makes them unique this is what the world needs from them is are all these things that they sometimes think like, oh no, I shouldn't be this way, or there's something wrong with me because I feel this or that. Um, it's just starting to to kind of pull those things forward and and say, oh, this is a beautiful part of you. It might feel challenging right now, but ultimately, I do feel like those are the things that they, as they grow into adulthood, are really their gifts and their strengths and make them unique individuals in the world. Um, so I love to just delve into like their particular hobbies or interests or, you know, what sparks joy or, or what they love, what they don't like, you know, all these things that just make us all so interesting as humans. Because some things about us just aren't changeable. Therapy can help us come into acceptance and authenticity. Absolutely. Yeah. Very well said. I'm wondering also from your vantage point, you've seen students struggle with a lot of things academically. And what what would you say to professors if you could? You know, they don't they don't get that one-on-one -on -one time and they don't have the vantage point of the collective wisdom that you've gained. Would you would you have wisdom for them in how they can better approach students? Yeah, that's a great question. Um you know, I often find myself working with students that are afraid to talk to a teacher or drop a class or make an adjustment to their academic schedule that nine times out of 10 ends up being really helpful um, for them. But the struggle to actually get there is is real. You know, they feel like they're not measuring up or 
I shouldn't do less. I need to do more. Um, I would, I think, you know, most professors, I feel like are so wanting to be helpful and available. Um, and they also need to hold the integrity of, of the course that they teach. And now I'm finding myself, you know, I do both. I'm actually, I'm a professor and I'm a mental health provider. Um, but I think really just listening and honoring um, where the student is and where the student's coming from. I feel like most students, if they're reaching out or they need to drop a class or make a change or they can't quite incorporate, um, you know, the expectations of, of the class, I would say most of the time it's been a hard journey to get to that place of asking um asking for maybe an extension or maybe needing to drop a class and just to be honoring of, of where they're at and what they think is best for them. Um, I'd say my work in the therapy realm is just to in, help a client work through those feelings and get to a place where they feel okay with making adjustments in order to have a more balanced life or in order to help so often that can, I've just seen that really shift a mental health problem where there's all this anxiety and a simple um, readjustment of their schedule or, or reducing their load can really help alleviate anxiety and stress that was becoming unmanageable and can help it become manageable and, and also help them to see that this isn't going to ruin their education. This isn't that, you know, they can make adjustments, they can take time off and come back to it. It's going to be there. So any kind of encouragement, I think, from professors along those lines um, can be really helpful when students find themselves in a little bit of a predicament with maybe their workload or work-life balance and that sort of thing. What do you hope this conversation sparks? Let's see. Well, it's been really enjoyable to just sort of think through these questions and I, I appreciate them so much. And um, maybe that someone would just feel more open to engaging counseling services on their campus um, or get it, getting involved in um, promoting mental health on their campus. You know, it, some campuses have resources that go beyond individual therapy. I think groups are amazing for students to engage and talk to each other and get to experience that other people are having the same struggles. Um, and I, maybe that's one of my hopes that even if the therapy doesn't seem like the direction, just encouraging more dialogue um, amongst friends and about what's going on in that interior world. Um, yeah. And then just all the things that, that are available to us to, engage our minds and our souls and our psyches on all these different levels um, that really promote a sense of mental well-being. So, yeah. And it sounds like from what you shared with us today, one of the most important things that we need for our mental well-being is to not try to go it alone or not feel alone, but that we need support. And we need to, if we don't have a support network, we need to start intentionally creating one. Absolutely, yeah. So the the support system it is so important, and and I would also say, 
uh, open, like open your eyes to where, what that is. Um, sometimes we're getting support in places that we don't really think of in that way. Um, so we have our, all of our kind of concentric circles around ourselves of those like closest to us. And then, um, you know, it kind of goes out from there. So we think of our family and our closest friends, but I think there are levels of support uh, that we, we need all of those different levels. Um, you know, sometimes, and this is one of the things that is sort of hard to, to deal with in, in these times of COVID that some of those outer circles of support are less present in our lives. Um, because we're not engaging with people in, in the marketplace or at these various institutions that we might be a part of. And so, um, but I've noticed how even sometimes these impromptu conversations I'll have with the receptionist at the front desk of the college where I work become really meaningful and in a sense supportive, um, different qualities of different relationships and how we can glean that sense of support and connectedness through all the various um, systems that we're a part of. And so my hope is when we kind of get back to a little bit more normal life, we'll all be so engaged because we've had a lack of that for so long. It's been really challenging. My final question is, what do you hope listeners will take away? Ah, that's a good question. Um, I think hope. I think a sense of hope. And really, sometimes I think those of us in mental health and working with people, um, in some ways, that, that's the ultimate goal. We're sort of hope peddlers or trying to promote a sense of hope. And, and then, yeah, that, that would be my takeaway. I think hope is a wonderful takeaway. Elizabeth Canella, thank you so much for being on the show today and talking with us about supporting mental wellness while you're a student. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. Please join us again.